Hey guys and gals, it's another month, and that means you got another chance at landing some great musky baits from Chubby Chasers Custom Bucktails. These are benchmark quality baits at an affordable rate. They offer custom bucktail, marabou, and flashaboo models with unlimited blade choices. They are also the creators of the Bush Buster Musky Jig. I personally have a couple of these, and I've got to tell you, they are the ultimate throwback presentation. When a muskie rolls in on the 8 and he won't eat, it can be very frustrating. But we've had great success pitching these jigs upstream, letting them tick the bottom right back down to the fish, twitching it in their face, and watching them absolutely choke on it. It's a great bait for those late follows or those non-aggressive fish. So shoot them a message on Facebook or Instagram. Their Facebook is Chubby Chasers Custom Bucktails, and their Instagram is Chubby Chaser Customs. Shoot them a message right now. Tell them the Evolving Angle Podcast sent you, and you're going to get 10% off your order. Hey, man, I want to thank you for coming on to the Evolving Agar podcast. Guys, I'm hanging out with Jay Harella. Is that right? That's right. Yay, I got it right that time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sitting down with Jay Harella with the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife. You mind uh, explaining like what your job title is? Because if I tried to say it, it would absolutely, uh, I'd get so tongue-tied. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So I'm the fisheries program coordinator uh, for the stream investigations research branch. And that's a research branch within the fisheries division of Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife. Nice. And what exactly is it that you do? So basically that title is a, a glorified long title for a research biologist, but uh, most of my projects do have a research question tied to them. So we're trying to find something specific out, but we work on all sorts of different things. Um, they're related on streams and rivers. Um, we do catfish work on Ohio river, sauger work up on Ohio river, uh, musky work, on the Kentucky River, we do sport fish assessments on pretty much any stream and creek you can think of. And uh, we do some lake sturgeon work and a few other things here and there as well. Nice. So you guys cover it all. That's right. We are, we're based out of Frankfurt, but we're, we're statewide. It's me and uh, uh, one more biologist and two, two technicians. Man, I'm sure you're uh, very full of knowledge, uh, and especially on the topic we're going to be talking about today. Guys, uh, we're talking about walleye here in the state of Kentucky, and I want to start off by discussing the uh, different strains, I guess you would say, of walleye. I guess there's what, an Erie and a, uh, is it Rock Castle? Yeah, so it is Rock Castle River strain. Uh, you, you may hear me refer to that one as uh, Rock Castle River strain or native walleye is what I typically say. Okay. Uh, but yes, it, it is a different uh, subspecies of the walleye. Okay. Yeah. I'd heard a story, I guess, part of Fish and Wildlife was shocking up walleye on Rock Castle River and uh, were having trouble locating them. And then actually ended up shocking up some of those walleye there. Um, I wasn't sure how true that story was, but. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, 
historically, this uh, river strain, this Rockcastle River strain, was a little bit more widespread in Kentucky. Uh, but over the years, through impoundments and you know different uh, changes to the topography of the state and things like that, they kind of became their, their range kind of shrunk down. But they they've always had a a, a presence in that Rockcastle River. Uh, and years back, I want to believe it was in the early 2000s, maybe 2002, uh, we started a native walleye restoration program, and that began on the Rockcastle River. And since then, we've spread it out to some other places throughout the state. Oh, that's cool. I know some people get walleye confused with sauger. I myself, when I you know, just started fishing for walleye here, I probably had only seen a handful of them my entire life you know, between them and sauger, and I got a little bit confused. And you know, just didn't know any better. Uh, I want to talk real quick about the differences between walleye and sauger. So if anybody's listening and they, and they want to get into it, or, or maybe they walleye fish or sauger fish can't tell the difference, uh, if you don't mind explaining maybe a little bit of the, the anatomy of the differences that you'll see between sauger and walleye. Absolutely. So walleye are, are, have a potential to get, get a little bit bigger than sauger, but uh, you can definitely catch some big sauger too. Uh, walleye, uh, one of the main things to look for on them is on their anal and caudal fins, so that one of those fins on the bottom and then that tail fin on the margins of them, um, they'll have some white coloration on the margins a lot of times. Another one to look for is on the uh, spiny dorsal fin, which is that front dorsal fin up on their back. Uh, There'll be a black blotch kind of at the base of it a lot of times. Um, However, with sauger um, on that spiny dorsal fin, there'll be a bunch of different spots on them. And they'll be pretty pronounced. And also with the sauger, uh, rather than being one solid color, a lot of times you'll see these, we call them saddled marks that kind of go across the back. Okay. Uh, really unique looking pattern when you get one that's uh, colored up really well. You know, some people call them ugly, <laughs> but man, they're, to me, they're such a beautiful fish. I mean, yeah, they got, you know, teeth and all that, but um, yeah. I want to talk about too about the, uh, there's actually a difference in preferred habitat between walleye and sauger too, isn't there? Uh, there is. Um, there, there can be some overlap at, for sure, but um, your walleye, particularly your eerie walleye, uh, um, are going to be a little more suited towards uh, cleaner, less turbid water. Uh, and those eerie walleye tend to do pretty well in lakes, while the, the native walleye, that Rock Castle River strain, they do like you know a little bit cleaner water. But they, they do well in our, our rivers and streams, especially some of our smaller ones like Rock Castle, the Forks of the Kentucky, whereas sauger are really more suited to you, like your big kind of dirty river. Not dirty as far as pollution, but, you know, they've got some turbidity and they've got some mud in them. Yeah. Things like the Kentucky, you know, the lower portion of the Kentucky River, lower portion of Green River, Ohio River, things like that. Um, yeah, I know, I know from fishing uh, Kentucky River, now, I don't think I've ever caught a walleye out of the Kentucky River, but I've caught a ton of sauger in different parts of the Kentucky. Uh, it seems like almost every, uh, I don't want to say lock and dam, I guess about every one of them will hold sauger, uh, especially, you know, this time of year in the winter months. You guys do quite a bit of, of stocking of sauger on, on Kentucky, right? Yeah, so we we stock almost every pool on there. Uh, it if memory serves correct, it's it's pools two through thirteen get stocked, and they get about ten thousand fish per per pool every year uh, oh. when the hatchery has a good year. 
And we did used to sock some walleye in there, but due to some new, the, the ongoing efforts for the native walleye, we're trying to kind of phase the eerie out there. Uh, and, and there are some native walleye further up in the system, uh, you know, up above the forks areas. Okay. Plenty of sauger to be caught. And yeah, like you said, good place to target them, especially right now is below those locks and dams. I want to start talking about the uh, current stocking programs that you guys have here in Kentucky. I don't know if you've got a general idea how many streams you guys stock right now, but you guys do stock both the Erie and the Rock Castle, right? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, you know, the Erie's seem to do a little bit better in lakes, and that's where we typically stock the Erie's. Uh, the Erie's a lot, you know, they'll end up in Cumberland, Dale Hollow, Laurel, Car Creek, Nolan, and Green River Lakes. Um, the only streams that they go into would be uh, Russell Fork there in East Kentucky, and also Licking River there around Moorhead. Uh, those are those go in at the tailwater. I've caught walleye by accident stripping flies for trout on oh, yeah. uh, uh, Russell Fork. That's a beautiful place to uh, fish, but they're they're aggressive fish. Oh yeah, but <laughs> I've I've caught uh, probably two or three on on Russell Fork by accident. Yeah. It was pretty cool to do, especially trout. You know, fly fishing for trout. But we, we also do stock those native uh, walleye into some rivers and streams. Uh, all three forks, the Kentucky gets some. Upper Barren used to get some. That's part of a research project now. Barren River Lake Tailwater, Rock Castle River, Upper Cumberland, you know, up above the falls there all the way up towards Harlan uh, gets them as well. So they're, they're spread out fairly well. So if I looking at a picture of like maybe an Erie and a rock castle walleye, can you tell the difference just by looking at them? No, no. The, the only way that we have to tell them apart uh, is to send off a genetic sample. So we, before we stock them out, we have to make sure that the brood stock are either Erie or native. Uh, and we, we send genetic samples out to, to a lab to have that done for us. Man, there's so much that goes into that. I don't think yeah. people people realize how much goes into the whole stocking program. It is a very intensive and multi-step effort. Yeah. Well, since you've been, uh, I guess, holding this position, have you noticed any major dips like in walleye population in Kentucky? I wouldn't necessarily say dips. Um, I, I also can't say that we've, we've had a real big jump uh, in anything in the natives. You know, we are seeing survival of those stocked fish but we're not seeing a whole lot of, uh, doc- we're not documenting a whole lot of natural reproduction uh, of those fish. It- it's still early in some of those streams and s- some of the other ones have been going on for a while. And I wouldn't say any, any dips, but I also wouldn't say, you know, that, you know, we're really bolstering anything just yet, but, you know, starting out with low numbers, it, it takes a while to really get them some, some things off the ground. And we really just expanded the program a few years ago. Uh, so I, I'd say it's still too early to tell kind of the, the future direction of that project at, at this point and ha- how the native walleye, that Rock Castle River strain are going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, um, you know, water temps or anything have anything to do with the, the reproduction. I know like when I went to Ontario a couple of years ago, one of the guys that owned the cabin there on the lake told us we, you know, we got on discussion of, of the walleye spawn and all this. And, and he was telling us that a walleye, I guess, typical spawning temps is around 50 degrees. Correct. And, and he said that uh, if a walleye wasn't, I guess, exposed to that 
certain temperature for an extended amount of time that they will actually reabsorb the eggs and they won't produce eggs for that year. Is that true? It's definitely possible that uh, fish can absorb eggs, not, you know, not just walleye. Um, I do believe it's happened uh, with some of the fish that we've sent to the hatchery before, but anything kind of negative that, that becomes stressful to a fish can, can cause that. So, I mean, sometimes even just us handling them too much could cause something like that. So when we collect these brood stock, you know, both both us collecting them and then then uh, the hatchery workers, the hatchery managers and biologists there uh, are really careful to limit their handling time with these fish to, you know, let's get them off the truck and into the raceways and, you know, let's, let's be very careful and diligent with what we're doing here uh, and, and not stress these fish out. Yeah. I know you mentioned some of the streams you guys stock them in. Are there any like prerequisites you guys choose before you stock a stream or a body of water? Like, I don't know, maybe habitat or, or bait fish or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, like I said earlier, the, the Erie walleye are, are seem to be a little bit better suited for lakes and that's where we stock them at. But the, that rock castle river strain, which is native, native to that drainage and seems to do is fairly stable in that, in that, area uh, we look for streams that are similar to that we're looking for riffle pool habitat um, we do need you know some depth some deep holes to be had uh, and typically you know cleaner clearer water doesn't stay super turbid for extended periods of time so you know the streams that have kind of met that and that we have extended the, the uh, work to would be upper cumberland river north north fork south fork and middle fork of the kentucky river Upper Barren River as well as Barren River Lake Tailwater. Uh, we've got a few lakes that that they had been stocked in in the past, and that was mainly an effort for us to try and get them to survive well and let us get an easy brood stock uh, collection site. Okay, uh, that hasn't worked out quite as well as we wanted to, but there are a couple lakes like a uh, Wood Creek Lake and Martin's Fork Lake um, that that also get them. You know, I got a funny story to tell you about. Uh, Car Creek. Uh, I went down there to fish for walleye, and it was back. Uh, this is probably two years ago as well. It was back in the winter time. And I had my kayak, and I was backing it down the uh, down the boat ramp there. Didn't realize the boat ramp was iced over, and of course I wasn't going fast. But when I tapped my brake, I just started sliding all the way down. You know that boat ramp's super <laughs> long, and uh, I'm just sliding along down that boat ramp, boat ramp really, really slow. And I'm thinking to myself, I had plenty of time to just sit there and like debate life choices you know <laughs> so <laughs> i rode my window down real quick because i was like i knew for sure i was gonna slide right into the uh the lake but uh luckily enough my vehicle stopped and water was about i don't know a third of the way up my door and i was able to kind of take a breath and and pull out <laughs> but uh i thought for sure uh well i told my wife about it like she was she was mad she, <laughs> she thought for sure yes, that's uh, never a good feeling no man i tell you that's one of the scariest i've been in a while as far as fishing, I can't explain it. It was just, I wasn't going very fast, but it was just such a slow slide. It, it felt like forever. And I was sitting there like, what am I going to do? I can't stop. I can't. <laughs> but uh, I ended up getting on some walleye that day. And, uh, you know, to mention Car Creek there around the dam, there's a lot of rocks. And so one of my favorite things to do in general, walleye fishing is jigging a minnow. And mm -hmm. I don't know how much walleye fishing you do. Yeah, uh, it's a tri tried and true method for sure. I, I know, uh, you know, like I say, I, I don't typically target them myself, but I do catch a few here and there. And, and you know, I catch some saw guy 
uh, when I'm crappie fishing in the summer, just pulling crankbaits behind the boat. So it's an it's a nice bonus fish to have with you know alongside a limit of crappie for sure. Oh, definitely. And you know, on the subject of of uh, crappie versus walleye, but I'll tell you this: walleye is probably my favorite fish. If you put a pl- plate of crappie, a plate of bluegill, and a plate of walleye, I'm gonna eat the walleye every time. <laughs> I'm I'm right there with you. I, I don't understand. You know, there's some guys that like bass. That's fine. I don't I don't keep bass. I don't eat bass when I've got crappie and and bluegill and walleyes as other choices. I'm telling you. Uh, the first time I ever eaten while I was up in Ontario. And uh, yeah, that's another funny story in itself because, you know, they fly us in up there and leave us for six days. Everything's solar powered. We're in Northern Ontario uh, on a little cabin. They give us a boat and some fuel and, and turn us loose. And uh, our batteries that were holding charge for the uh, solar power went out like two days in. So we were running out of food. So we just decided we wasn't even going to eat while out there, but we decided to start keeping them and eating them. <laughs> so we'd have meals <laughs> and uh, man, we, very quickly fell in love with the taste of walleye. And so ever since then, I've been, I've been a huge fan. I don't, obviously I don't keep, you know, everyone I catch, but every now and then if I catch a, you know, a decent size one, I, I may keep it and flay it out and eat it. But that's uh, definitely one of my favorite fish to eat. And, uh, you know, back to talking about the lures and stuff. I don't know a whole lot about their vision, but from what I've read, you know, in my couple years of chasing walleye is that they like a lot of reds and orange and greens. Uh, so like typically your better days fishing for them are cloudier days. Yeah. If you're, if you're going to fish during the day, you know, you, you definitely want kind of that cloudy overcast day, but I mean, they are highly visual predators, big time sight predators. Oh, yeah. uh, and they do tend to be quite active at night. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, it's easier. For, they, they've got good vision, but it's hard for other fish to see them coming at night. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people that target walleye, sawgai, sauger, um, they they won't even start fishing till it gets dark. Yeah, or they'll fish that really late dusk period into dark, or you know, start when it's dark and fish, you know, maybe till thirty minutes to an hour after sunrise, and then they'll call it quits. Yeah, we've uh, done we've done well fishing at night for them, even on crankbaits, rattle traps, you know, jerk baits. But I mean, yeah, color wise, you really just got to think, you know, what what's the most visible in that water column and or in that water clarity. And a lot of people think, you know, if it's muddy, they need a real bright bait. But actually, a lot of times the dark bait stands out better in dark water, just the the way that the silhouette is from the sunlight coming in above. So that's a, that's exactly right. Uh, I'm usually if I'm throwing cranks in muddy water, I'm throwing something dark. You said it uh, perfectly. Dark holds silhouette. And you know, it water. seems like the only thing that it doesn't matter what color it is that'll catch a walleye is, is some sort of fire tiger. I I, I think that's kind of like the old if it if it ain't chartreuse it ain't no use uh, <laughs> for some people. So yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the um, the shocking and and harvesting process. You don't have to go you know super in depth, but I guess what uh, what time of year you guys usually go out and and uh, shock for these fish to collect eggs. So we, we go out pre, you know, just pre-spawn. So we, we've actually already started doing it okay. for, for all, all, all of our, you know, these uh, walleye and sauger, you know, but really it, it'll get hot and heavy at the end of February through, you know, middle to end of March. So these fish will, uh, depending on, you know, what kind of spring, you know, early spring, late winter that we're having, uh, we'll, we'll start to try to do their thing by the end of March, early April. So. Um, you know, we like to try and get a, a nice head start on it. So we're not, 
you know, trying to beat the clock right at the end. And, you know, we'll, we'll go out to certain areas where we know we can find fish. We've had good luck in the past. We've got populations that can support it to do that. And uh, we'll shock these fish up. We don't take any more than we need. Uh, they go to the hatchery where they get spawned out. And uh, once those fish have, the, those brood stock, those big females and males have recovered from that process, there is a little bit of mortality associated with that, but it, it's pretty minimal. But all those fish get get brought back to where they were taken from. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times people in some of our high-profile high areas that do have some pressure on them uh, see us taking fish. They're not too happy about it. Uh, it, it you know, and we, we kind of have to talk to them, and we usually talk them down, and they understand what we're doing. And, uh, you know, they're happy to hear that we're bringing those fish back, but we're also bringing, you know, maybe another hundred to 200,000 small fish with it. So yeah. uh, once those fish get stocked back in. Well, since you said that number, how many do you guys usually, uh, it's maybe hard to, to estimate, but do you have an estimate on how many you do stock per year? Yeah, I don't know the total number off the top of my head doing the math, but I, I, I'd say it's well over a million between the, all the species. Um, and, and that's of, of fingerling. So you know, we stock, uh, all the lakes get, get a pretty high stocking rate of, uh, the ones that we stock at least, uh, get a pretty high stocking rate, rate of, of eerie walleyes. Uh, off the top of my head, Lake Cumberland gets 350,000 eerie walleye. Uh, no Lynn and Green both get 200,000 every year. Car Creek gets about, uh, 35,000 a year. And then the, the native walleye, uh, they get stocked at a rate that's based on, you know, how many river miles you've got uh, in those creeks and stuff. Okay. Uh, and that's not as many because we don't have as many to, to kind of play around with. And uh, it's a little tougher to get brood stock uh, for that, uh, that subspecies there. But we get quite a bit. And then we also stock, stock sauge, which is a combination of sauger and walleye that we produce at the hatchery. And those go into a handful of our smaller state-owned lakes. And that, that you know, total, we're probably stocking uh, 150 to 200,000 of those as well. Nice. It's a lot of numbers. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fish. And, and our hatchery does, it, does a great job of, of producing them and, and keeping them in pretty good health and getting them on the trucks and, and to the lakes for everybody to have another opportunity. Yeah. So what size are those that you're stocking? So the historically, the goal has always been two inches. Um, so those fish will spawn, get, you know, get spawned out at the hatchery uh, late March, early April. And it takes about 18 or 20 days for the eggs to hatch out. Uh, and then those fry get put into a pond uh, and they just feed on zo- uh, zooplankton and they'll just grow out naturally. And the hatchery staff will keep an eye on those ponds, make sure the plankton's not going to crash. And when they know it's about to, they'll harvest that pond and stock them. And usually those fish will get to about two inches. Now, there's a lot of research out there that says advanced fingerling, you know, larger size fish, stocking larger size fish will do better. Uh, And that's not just for walleye, that's for a lot of different species. So, yeah. because we've been having some issues with the natives and we want to have good survival, uh, we've actually been trying to grow them out to five inches uh, by providing some additional forage for them to eat. 
and, and they're pretty voracious. So, I mean, as soon as you put them in the water, uh, they're, they're ready to go. We actually have got a, a photo of one of the native walleyes being stopped and right off the truck, um, it actually caught a minnow uh, right on the boat ramp. So they are, when they are stocked, they're, they're ready to go. That is awesome. <laughs> I'd like to have seen that. Um, I want to back up real quick and ask like roughly what size and age you guys are looking for when you do select uh, walleye. Yeah. So, you know, when we're out there, um, we're really looking for those bigger, mature fish. Uh, you know, for a female, we're talking probably five, five years minimum uh, to, to really get a nice fit, uh, female with a lot of eggs in it. And that's that's probably in that 22 to 25 inch range at least. And, and then the males is, is probably 16 to 18 inches minimum. Um, those, you know, when the closer you get to spawn and you can tell if they're mature or not, you know, if you've ever caught one in March, you know, it, it'll be flowing, you know, milt pretty uh, heavily um, and you'll know right away whether it's good to go to the hatchery or not. The other way to kind of tell on some of those is if you look at them, the immature fish will have somewhat of a translucent belly sometimes. So that's at least on smaller fish, that's another way to tell. But we're looking for, I'd say 18 to 25 inch fish for the most part is is kind of the range we're looking for. Uh, And that'd be, you know, a five-year-old female and uh, maybe a three-year-old male is kind of our, our baseline there. Yeah. And how long was it you said it takes walleye to reach the, that stockable size? Um, we stock, so they spawn out, you know, they, the eggs are, are spawned out in, let's just say early April and it takes about uh, three weeks for them to hatch. And I want to say that uh, the, the two inch fish are ready to go in June and the five inch fish, I'd have to look back on that, but just based on that growth rate, probably late July, early August, um, I would think those fish are ready to go. Uh, so, so they have really quick growth rates when they're young. You know, that just goes to show, you know, just that certain fish, how long you guys uh, have them at the hatchery. This isn't even uh, touching on the subject of muskie and the different bass and uh, other fish that you guys stock, you know, throughout the year. And so, you know, I, I've heard people criticize the stocking process and, and you know, I, I just can't imagine anybody that would sit down and like talk to you or anybody with the fish and wildlife. I have, well, I'll just say I have such respect, even more respect for it now, just talking to you because it's such in-depth, lengthy process to get a lot of these fish to certain lengths to be able to stock them. There's a lot of work involved. I guess it's pretty much a 24 seven job, isn't it? Uh, it? It really is for the hatchery staff. And, you know, you've got uh, biologists that go out and collect these fish. You've got our transportation uh, crew that that hauls the fish back and then you've got the hatchery crew that you know spawns these fish out and then has to hatch them and rear them and grow them uh, and then it's back on the transportation crew to to get them to the places that they need to go to and uh, you know they they've really got it down to pretty good uh, schedule there to where they they know exactly to the week, a lot of times, you know, hey, this is the week we're going to be run, running walleye, and they, they know that pretty far in advance. Um, That's crazy. They, they they've done it enough and got it. It's it's a very efficient process. It's as efficient as it can be. Yeah, it's, it's very time consuming. Uh, it takes a lot of hands, and there's a lot of moving parts. But 
uh, I, I think between everybody, we've made it about as efficient as we can be. Yeah. What are some of the species that you guys, uh, some of the other species you guys stock? So we, we've got two hatcheries uh, that are state run. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Wolf Creek uh, National Fish Hatchery down uh, at Cumberland. Uh, they do strictly trout. Okay. Uh, so that's where all our trout come from. Uh, but the other two hatcheries, one in Frankfurt and one in Moorhead, uh, they do, you know, pretty much all the other species that we have in Kentucky. Uh, and, and not every one of them gets stocked in every lake, but uh, they do largemouth bass, uh, uh, hybrid striped bass, striped bass, uh, blue catfish, channel catfish, lake sturgeon, alligator, gar, jeez, uh, uh, sauger, walleye, sauge. Uh, it's, I mean, you you name it, musky. Um, if you if it's a sport fish that mo- that is sought after, you know, much at all, uh, it's probably going getting produced at one of our hatcheries. Now that's an insane amount of fish. It's, I, I wish I had the number on the top of my head, what each hatchery produces, but it would, w- when people say we don't stock enough fish for the, the capacity we have, uh, it would really blow your mind actually how many fish are, are, are coming out of the hatchery each year. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I was talking about with, you know, certain people, criticize them. They ain't stocking here. They're not stocking there. Man, they don't realize how much work goes into this. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of places that that maybe don't get stocked with the species that certain people want, that there may be a, a certain management objective, you know, kind of associated with that lake or something. So, that you know, I, it, for anybody that's like that, I, I would encourage you to to please call our info center and they'll, they'll get you uh, situated to the biologist you need to talk to if you've got any questions. And, and you know, before you, you know, get mad about it, get some information on it and maybe we can help you understand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You still might not be happy and that's okay. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't please everybody. I don't know how many people live in the state, but you know, you're not going to please hundred percent of everybody. You know, and, and that's another thing back to the uh, prerequisites for choosing a stream, you know, it may not be suitable for a certain fish. You're obviously not going to put walleye in a place where there's no or there's nothing for it to eat, you know, it's, you're just throwing in fish to die. So, exactly. um, but, uh, you know, we talked about the stocking size, but I also want to also hit on uh, some of the regulations here real quick, uh, as far yeah. as the size limits, um, slot limits, you know, if there's any place for slot limits, things like that, just to kind of give an overview of that to anybody listening, uh, wants to fish for walleye here in the state of Kentucky. Absolutely. So, so we've got two things to look out for, um, our, our statewide reg, is between any of those species that we've mentioned, whether it be, you know, walleye, sauger, or sauge, uh, because some of them do occur in the same places, but the, the minimum length limit is 14 inches, and you're allowed to keep six a day. So that means, you know, you could have six walleye, or you could have three walleye and three sauger, uh, as long as they're all over 14 inches and you're legal, and you don't have more than six combined. Uh, and, and we did that, that reg changed, I believe in 2019, um, to make them all the same size limit and kind of combine them that way. It made it easier on law enforcement. You know, sometimes they are a little tough to tell, tell apart, um, to, to, especially to people that don't have a ton of experience. Uh, so it made it easier on, on the angler as well. The other one you want to look for, uh, is if you're fishing in an area that does have the native walleye. 
Uh, most of those have a protective slot limit. That slot limit uh, means you must release everything within that slot, which is 18 to 26 inches. And the creel limit is also reduced to two fish a day. Uh, so the best thing I can tell you to do is if, if you're going to an area that you know has walleye and you're not sure about what the reg is, get in our reg book. Okay, that's what the statewide is. Let me look in the water body specific section and see if, uh, you know, that's included in there. Uh, and it'll tell you, you know, you know, whatever species you're going after, if there's a specific reg other than the statewide that you need to go after. So, you know, just just try and if you're going somewhere new and you're not sure and you're planning on keeping fish, just it, it's a quick thing to do. Get online or if you've got a, a hard copy handy, uh, look at it real quick and, uh, you know, make sure you're abiding by all the regulations. Yeah. Now, I want to touch on quick on the uh, possession limit. If you want to explain that, because I know there's a lot of people that don't understand the difference between possession limit versus, uh, I guess, the daily limit. So the the creel limit or your daily limit is how many you're allowed to keep in one day. Um, and typically the possession limit is defined as uh, twice the daily limit. Uh, and that means like, say you wanted to go on a, on a two day trip you know, and you went out Friday morning and you caught six fish and kept fish. Well, you're done. You can keep fishing, but you can't keep any more that day. But you can go out the next day on Saturday and catch catch and keep another six. At that point, that's the most fish you can have in your possession. That doesn't Uh, count once you fillet them, right? uh, Yeah. So, so if you're, if you're talking processed fish, that's a whole different story. Okay. Uh, If you're going out to say, Taylorsville Lake every day of the week uh, to go crop crappie fishing or, or whatever, you know, you can keep your limit, come back to the house, fillet them and go out the next day and do it. And then you and fillet them and go out the next day and do it, fillet them. Once those fish are processed, they don't count against your possession limit. Now you can't go home, fillet them and go back out the same day. You're still, right. you're still regulated by that daily limit. Yeah. That, so, I think that goes back to responsible harvesting of, really any fish. I can't stress the importance of responsible harvesting. You know, I'm not going to knock a guy for keeping a fish by no means. Now, if it's outside of the regulations and laws of the state of Kentucky, then yeah, that would probably aggravate me. But, you know, within the, the confines of uh, the laws and regulations of a state, I can't stress enough to follow those guidelines and, and don't be out here catching 40 walleye in a day, <laughs> you know, and taking them home. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, you know, you guys obviously do stock them, um, but, you know, it's part of that process of wanting to see them gain some some ground in the uh, natural spawning and natural, what's the word I'm trying to think of, uh, natural reproduction of, yeah. you know. So, and we, that's kind of twofold. So, you know, with the eerie walleye that we're stocking in the lakes and the sauger as well, you know, that that's always been a meat fishery and and we want people to utilize that. Um, It's a very underutilized fishery in the state based on some creel data we've got. You know, we don't have a lot of people specifically targeting them, but those that do and are, you know, are willing to keep those fish. But, you know, we put a lot of fish in and, and, you know, we'd love to see some more utilization of it. Um, The the Erie Walleye don't have a whole lot of reproduction, uh, if any, in the lakes. So, you know, we're putting them there for for anglers to be able to take them home and put them on the table. Yeah. Now the native walleye, that's a little different story. 
uh, yeah, you know, eventually that'd be great if it's a meat fishery, but we're really trying to reestablish that population. And that's kind of why that slot limits on there is to once they survive to a certain size where they're getting into that, that brood stock, that their, that mature fish size, we want them to be protected uh, so that they can spawn and help us build that population through natural reproduction rather than just us stocking. Hey, I got a question here. Yeah. I want to talk about the, uh, the famous state record walleye, 21 pounds. Have you ever shocked up anything close to that? <laughs> and if, I, so, if so, I want to know where. <laughs> I, I have seen one that was a little over a third that size. <laughs> the, the biggest one I've seen was, I, I want to say it was a hair over eight and a half pounds. Uh, and that was a, a native walleye. Uh, and, and I think we've got one or two that were over 10 pounds, you know, in the history of us doing the native walleye work. You know, I'd have to check with some of the other district, the district biologists that do some walleye sampling for Erie's here and there to see what their biggest is. But, you know, to me, that's just one of those records that seems like it, it'll never be touched. And, and how the heck did that happen? That that was 19, was that in the 50s? I think so, yeah. That That very well could have been a native walleye in the upper part of that lake. So when that lake was impounded, when lakes become impounded, uh, a few years after that happens, there's this big boom cycle where the bait fish just go crazy. And with a lot of bait fish means your, your predator fish, bass, walleye, catfish have a lot to eat so they can grow really quick. And, and they typically do really well following that. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, you know, have it on record that, that that was happening in in Lake Cumberland. Um, we've, we've got historical pictures of, of large stringers of, of walleye, likely native walleye being caught and pulled from there, you know, with, with eight plus pound averages uh, of fish on some of these stringers we see. So if I had to guess, you know, very likely that, that at that time period and, uh, where it was caught could could have been a, a, a native walleye. I can imagine hooking into a walleye that big. I mean, you would think it's a muskie, <laughs> you know, when you first seen it. Yeah, I, I mean, like, it's just, you just set the hook and it doesn't move. Yeah. Gosh, man, I mean, I've caught some big walleye, but nothing anywhere close to that. I don't know, I can't imagine. But, uh, hey, props to the to the person that beats that record. But I'm like, you know, I, don't, I don't know that that'll ever be touched. I hadn't seen anything like that in my lifetime, so. Yeah, had to catch one and throw a bowling ball down its throat or something. <laughs> I don't know. I want to uh, ask you, too, uh, you know, about some of the future plans maybe you guys have for uh, walleye, maybe in the upcoming years. Uh, do you guys look to – I know you only stock a certain amount of streams. Do you guys look to maybe expand that? So with the native walleye, we're, we're kind of uh, stretched as far as we can go right now uh, until we are able to have some better broodstock success. Uh, it, it's not easy to get females. It could be uh, that's a habitat issue and we're just not able to get to them. It could be, you know, survival to, to older ages. Um, we're, we're not 100% sure there. Uh, absolutely, if we were able to have higher hatchery production, uh, we'd love to be able to expand it in the future. But right now we're, we're kind of capped out where we expanded uh, about five years ago to include a few more streams in that program. Okay. Uh, and that's pretty much stretched us to the max at this point. 
okay. uh, with what we can do on that front. We obviously wouldn't want to stock these fish into areas where we don't think they do well. So there, there's also a limitation there on, on how much the that the native walleye stockings could expand as well. But, you know, we don't plan on cutting back. Uh, so, so right now we're kind of just steady as she goes with, with what we're doing as far as the uh, water bodies that are getting stocked with that, that subspecies. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've got a couple of buddies that were interested in finding out the details of the extent of the stocking of walleye, because they were hoping that sometime in the future, the uh, fish and wildlife would get to the point where they could stock a few more streams and hopefully one of the, <laughs> one of the ones that live or one of the ones that flow around them. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, there, and there's other things that you've got to worry about too. You know, if you've got a good predator base already there, say, you know, a place has got a really good smallmouth population, uh, but you notice that, you know, there's not a ton of forage in there. You know, you're not seeing a lot of shad or silver sides or anything like that. You know, that would be something that the biologist would kind of need to have an idea of before you put another predator in there is, is can that system support another predator and, and what effect would that stocking potentially have on other on other populations of uh, fish? So yeah, that's good. That's good. I didn't think about that. You know, somewhere like a Taylorsville Lake. Uh, I don't know how often you fish there, but it doesn't. It seems like it doesn't matter what time of year it is there. You can walk across the shad that are on the surface. So yeah, uh, the the forage base there is incredible. You know, and it it, it supports a lot of predators. Whereas something like. Uh, you know, maybe a, a stream in your neck of the woods there, like Tigert's Creek or Kenny Knick, you know, we they don't have a, a, a real big forage population, uh, you know, and those are musky streams, which is, we, we can't, people want more musky in there. Well, if we put them in there, they're probably not going to be in very good shape. Yeah. You know, and if we, put, if we put walleye in there, you know, the same thing's probably going to happen. We're probably not going to have good survival and the fish that do survive are not going to look really well. So. Yeah. Um, it, it's not just because we don't want to. It's, you know, w- we've got to get return on our investment and, and we want to see those fish thrive if we're putting them in somewhere. Right. Well, there's a reason you guys go to school and you have the title that you do and you guys do what you do and and why, you know, I'm totally not doing your job. <laughs> you know, so there's a reason for that. And it's because you guys are specialized in that. And you, know, you guys obviously take your job serious. And, and you guys, you know, you're not out there to tick anybody off. You're just trying to make these streams. Uh, fishable and and uh, provide great habitats for for the fish that are already in there as well as the fish you stock so man i, I can't thank you enough for uh for what you do and, and the Kentucky fish and wildlife i think you guys do a great job there's uh several bodies of water that i can think of right off the top of my head that hold multiple species of fish that any time of year you can go catch anything from catfish, walleye, musky, crappie, bass and i know there's not a lot of streams out there like that but I know that obviously a lot of that is because of you guys. Um, hats off to you guys for what you do. But I want to, uh, uh, real quickly, uh, for those who are listening that maybe want to get into walleye fishing, maybe uh, touch on, uh, again, I know you mentioned some several streams in this podcast, but real quick, maybe you mentioned a handful of uh, lakes or, and uh, streams that some of these guys can potentially get on some walleye. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're looking to get on a lake, Lake Cumberland, uh, Dale Hollow, Laurel River Lake, Clark Creek Lake, Paintsville Lake, uh, No Lynn River Lake, Green River Lake. Um, they've all got walleye. Uh, Wood Creek Lake in southeast Kentucky's also got them. 
you know, if you're still wanting to stick to lakes, we also have that that hybrid species I mentioned, the sawgye, uh, some of our smaller state-owned lakes like Gist Creek Lake, uh, A.J. Jolly, Carpenter Lake. Those also get put into Taylorsville. And then if you're looking for, you know, if streams are more up your alley and you like floating in a kayak or wading, the three forks of the Kentucky River all have all have uh, native walleye, uh, Barren River Lake tailwater, middle fork of the Kentucky River, like I said earlier, that would be buckhorn tailwater. So that's nice, easy access. Um, probably the, the, the best, most used one in the state uh, in a place where we do get broodstock from occasionally because it's so consistent would be Green River Lake tailwater. Um, that, that'll actually be Erie's coming through the dam. Man, there, there's just a ton of places to go to, to catch these fish. And, you know, unless you're out in the far western part of the state, there, there's probably an opportunity, you know, within, I'd say, 30 minutes to an hour of most people. Nice. Uh, East Kentucky people, you know, there's also some walleye uh, in, in Lavaza Fork area and, uh, you know, below fish trap. And then, of course, we put Erie's into Russell Fork. So, there's some areas out there as well. Man, I'd like to see you guys start stocking a tug, but then again, I don't know the, you know, the the specifics of bait fish versus predators. So, you know, I know there's a lot of smallmouth, but so the yeah, and the tug is interesting. Um, we've got a reciprocal agreement with West Virginia. We actually do not own any of that water. Oh, that water is a hundred percent West Virginia's. So we have a reciprocal license agreement to where you can you can now fish it in a with a Kentucky license. Uh, it used to be the only way you could fish it with a Kentucky license was from the bank. And the moment you stepped in the water or got into a canoe, you needed a West Virginia license. Um, that changed several years back. but And we've got some reciprocal agreements with musky stocking uh, on the tug. But uh, right now, uh, you know, just to, to kind of, I, I guess we'll kind of go on a little rabbit trail there. But No, you uh, go ahead. That is, if you're out that way, that's, it's, people are starting to catch those muskies. So another, you know, more evidence that the stock, stocking does work in some cases and man, a, a great smallmouth stream. Oh yeah. Phenomenal smallmouth. I, I only reason I say this cause I, I grew up over there around the Williamson area. And so yep. that's what I said about the tug. I would like to see some walleye in there. Well, man, listen, uh, I won't hold you up anymore, but I appreciate you coming on to the uh, podcast and sharing uh, this awesome info about walleye in the state of Kentucky and the stocking program. And there's so much to it that I think people don't realize. Uh, I think education is key, you know, uh, and people understanding the process of, of what you guys have to do, you know, in order to be able to stock various species of fish. So once again, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. People are going to really enjoy this info, but uh, guys, guys, y'all listening up. I want to encourage you guys Go chase some of these walleye, chase some of these sauger. They're, they're uh, beautiful fish. Uh, be responsible and, and don't take any more than you're supposed to. And, but once again, Jay, I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Nick. I, I really enjoyed being here. Well, I definitely will get you on uh, another time if you're able, uh, maybe discuss some of these other species that you guys stock and, and some of the programs associated with them. Yeah, sure thing, man. Have a good one. Appreciate you. You too, man. Have a good one.